Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. I'm at Gigi Coyle's home called Three Creeks in the Owens Valley of California. Um, appreciating the quiet here. Yesterday I went for a walk to uh, some kind of mounds, probably made by glaciers. There's these gigantic boulders on them. And they were just emanating silence. Even though I could hear road noise in the distance. It was like the uh, silence of those of those rocks was drowning out the noise in a way and like blasting something right at my brain that felt uh, like a kind of nourishment that I'm really missing. And uh, I guess I'll introduce Gigi in kind of a similar way that, that um, like one of one of the concepts that that Gigi likes to uh, use is is watering holes, and I, I sometimes describe Gigi that way. For me, is a, a watering hole, like one of the stopping points, one of the the places, the people that uh, is a connection to a deeper source and. I feel liberated to connect my own source with what I'm relating to Gigi, relating to you. I'm just going to say you because um, like things that might sound crazy to other people are you're like, oh, of course, I'm glad someone someone else thinks that, too. And I'm like, Ugh, tribe, you know, like and I don't know if we like necessarily agree on everything, but even when we don't agree on something, I feel like we're coming from the same place. Mm. And I appreciate that. And yeah, I just, out of like all the people out there who have big voices and big platforms, um, I wish more people could hear you. And uh, that's why I'm keen to uh, record conversations with you and put them out there. And um, it's not that you necessarily have like a brilliantly articulated synthesis of the problems and solutions facing the world or anything like that but your your voice and the things you say carries many many decades of experiences at the edge like you've been an edge walker for a really long time and therefore 
the things that you say transmit the learnings from from the edges that you've that you've explored, even if you're not directly speaking about them, you're you're speaking from them, if not about them. And I think that's really valuable. And I really want this information to reach people who are ready for it. Mm. So, whoever's listening to this, I just encourage you to be in a state of receptivity and not so much of the kind of judging mind, which would take everything that you say and fit it into yes, no, right, wrong, agree, disagree. But to, yeah, to be in a, um, in a receptive, uh, I don't know, state, perhaps. Mm. So uh, thank you, Gigi. Thank you, Charles, for calling for the conversation. And just to say, um, I guess to begin where, where you began, which is the sound of silence. You know, I can remember as I say those words, who is it, Garfunkel or, you know, <laughs> that old song. And yeah. That kind of ages me right away. Um, but I just thought of that, you know, when you spoke, you know, that silence really is a sound especially in this world. And it's a sound that I think many of us seek and that we are resourced by. And there are practices all over the world to cultivate our relationship with silence. And just to um, express how grateful I am for living here at Three Creeks and having it be a base camp uh, for me to find that place in myself and to offer it to others when they come. And like every place, you know, Three Creeks um, has its challenges. It's um, paradise, I say, as much as we all make it that and see it to be that. Um, it's an oasis. And that is, by its very nature, uh, a very important watering hole, literally in these desert lands, in these places where um, the water has been taken primarily to build Los Angeles. Um, so there's a, a teaching uh, that arises just to be in this valley, the deepest valley in the continental US. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love that truth because um, I'm a person of extremes, and I really, uh, I can be really angry. It's like a flash fire. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last long, but you don't want to see that part. Yeah. <laughs> and I can really go down into the depths and the lonely, dark truth of our times, and I wake up every day and I look around at the beauty here and it activates um, that place of inner joy and that possibility within myself and again to share with others who come here um, the importance of seeing, making, living, loving beauty and maybe in some way how that's a, a counterforce to all of the non-beauty that mm -hmm. um, were around. 
So I, I welcome you here. I'm so glad you're here. And to say that as far as big platforms and um, reaching a lot of people, I, I've felt for a long time that a story has to be brought out of me. And I'm so aware working with groups of people where the story like really connects and serves one person. And I'm mm -hmm. so aware when it doesn't another person. And I think that's been one of my um, resistances to writing. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, to be in living relations and with someone like you, stories just come. And then I get to hear yours. And if there's an edge, you know, we get to explore that or a difference. And if, as you said, there's a similarity, wow, what a gift of just like someone else isn't. Yeah, I do love your stories. And I'm hoping that some of them will come out. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about silence and beauty, you know, and here we are in this secluded valley. And I want to say, like, Gigi, you're not somebody who is unaware of the horrors that are happening on this planet, the injustice, uh, the need for healing all over the place. And in your younger years, you were, in my, at least my impression is that you were like a full-on radical, like early 70s feminism, the intersection of feminism and race, you know, and like environmental, like activism, working with the dolphins. Like you're not somebody who's like, oh, I'm just going to bypass all of that and, you know, meditate to the sounds of silence. I see your trajectory that has brought you here to be actually a deepening of the activism, which as it deepens, it takes on a form that may not be recognizable to other people through the lens of activism. It may not look like activism to people who call themselves activists. And I'm wondering, was there like maybe a moment that, like I've had this conversation with other people too, like, like there was a guy in North Carolina who had been, you know, a county commissioner and involved in politics. And he pulled out of politics, saying that um, he wanted to engage in, in music and art because he knew that he could do a lot more. He'd be a, a lot more useful that way. And I'm wondering, did you ever have a realization like that? Or was there an experience that in some people's eyes might have been like, oh, she burned out and gave up. But it's actually... <laughs> A deepening. Yeah, a deepening or a changing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, I've been asked this question before, and I love it. And this is the best I can come up with. There have been lots of moments. And what I have, in looking back in my life, done is live the truth of my life. And that has taken me to the next action. And for me, my prayer a long time ago, if there was, I'll say where one big turning was, but I, I actually want to write a storybook on turnings, you know, turnarounds. Mm -hmm. um, I encourage other people as well to live the truth of their life. So in doing that and having a prayer to be part of the healing that's needed and part of the change that's needed and part of the growth that's needed in me and in this culture or in this world, I've been given the next way to be. And so um, 
you know, I could say, as, as you said a little bit in my college years, yeah, uh, feminist uh, Vietnam strike, you know, I can remember risking, oh, I'm going to get kicked out, you know, and mm -hmm. taking a stand, calling up my father and saying, I know you paid for my education. I'm sorry, but I have to do this. Can you support me, you know, to get kicked out? <laughs> you know, uh -huh. those kinds of moments where you really make a choice. And um, I had opportunities, certainly, that other people didn't. Um, to uh, go to college, to get out and find a job in those days was not easy. As a woman, I was the only woman in my graduate school. That radicalizes you pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I was the only white uh, woman in the group that I was working with then on race issues. Um, you know, I followed my heart and I followed the experiences that I had had as a child. I followed my wallet, you know, I had to work in those days. My parents were very committed. My father, Irish Catholic, hardworking. Mm -hmm. You get a job in the summers, then you get a job when you get out. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those years, um, it, the activism, which I say a prayer, really, to be part of the healing and change, took fairly visible forms. You know, being in a protest, um, being political, being very involved in the feminist movement, being um, a delegate to the first international women's conference, um, really thinking that political science and political action was going to change things. Mm -hmm. That's what was. And then going, ooh, uh, here's a turnaround moment. It was at the National Women's um, Conference. And I was head of the International Committee, and I remember the issues that came up where the um, women of color and their agenda were getting marginalized. I remember where some of the speakers to me sounded like the patriarchal kind of dictatorial leaders that I was working to be different then. Mm -hmm. And I, I hit the wall. And it was no mistake, it seems, that I was also around a lot of death in my life. That wakes us up. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of relatives. And then my mother died at a very young age, at 54, with cancer. These kinds of things inspired me to step back from all my activity and to really go sit on a rock in a river and mm -hmm. ask, what am I here for? <laughs> How am I to be with my gifts? How am I to be with my privilege? How am I to be with my education? And um, I spent a pretty dark year. I remember that time very well. And that was um, what's often called um, maybe a dark night of the soul or, right. you know, I really considered leaving the planet. I felt is this all there is? And I felt uh, I'm not making a good difference. I'm just part of the problem. And that's a time um, where I also was going to the desert and spending time in nature, which had been my teacher and my home. And I found a connection there in a way that I 
Yeah, missed it in some of my blood or mm -hmm. nuclear family situations. And that, that turnaround, I'll say, is where um, a very simple guidance came, which was go to the water. You know, of course, yeah. obvious thing in the desert. Um, but I took it literally. And I um, felt it meant the water inside of me. So really going further inside to ask these questions. And also I felt the water outside of me. At that time I was living in the Colorado mountains and I was just kind of beating myself up, you know, climbing as high as I could. And uh, yeah, just, mm -hmm. I was seeking initiation. Mm -hmm. And so I got on a little airplane and I flew to California and opened some new neural pathways. Yeah. So I'm having this image of sitting on a boulder in a river for a year. <laughs> a year is a little long, but, but for four days was Four good. days, yeah. But then all these other things too. Yeah. You know, being in the desert and going to the water and, uh, and you know, there's probably many people, I mean, I'm having kind of a moment like this out here. I've been, been out here for a few days and I've got all this stuff on my computer that I'm supposed to be doing, that I could be doing. I've, I'm running an online course, you know, I need to create material for that. There's like something I could write about this, something I could write about that, essays. I mean, I've got all this, all this work I sh quote should be doing. And I am just having the hardest time motivating myself to do that. And what I really want to do is pretty much nothing. And it goes against a lot of my programming to do nothing. And that programming can take many forms culturally. One of them would be, well, Gigi, that's all very nice for you. But most people don't have the luxury of taking a year off to go into their inner waters and to find themselves. They just have to make a living. And it's, you know, and here you are, like, sitting on a boulder while, while you know, single mothers are getting cut off food stamps because of a government shutdown. And while African-American men are being pipelined from the school to the prison and, 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 and here you are in your white privilege sitting on a boulder, um, engaging in spiritual bypass. When you should be out there doing something. Yeah. And, and so like, this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, one of the things that I came to is that how do we know that our doing something isn't actually part of the maintenance of the status quo? Even, for example, through um, permissible dissent that validates the system because here, look, you're doing free speech now. Like, how do we really know what it is that changes the world? Where do we source that knowledge from? The, the theory of change that our society offers us, what if that's part of the problem too? What if we have to source from somewhere else? And what if, so this whole spiritual bypass thing, um, recently a, a term came to me, which is political bypass, which is engaging in kind of prescribed political 
forms and actions that make you feel like you are now part of the solution, make you feel that you're on team good in the war against team evil, make you feel no longer guilty for being a white person or a whatever person, um, but are they serving that? Or are they really serving healing in the world? So I'm wondering, um, yeah, like what, how do you narrate your path when confronted with um, internal and external accusations of spiritual bypass or, or things like that? Gosh, you know, we haven't, we've only spent a little time together, but we've touched on this already. And it's, of course, for me, one of my favorite topics because it is an essential conversation today. And it is going on in so many people's hearts and minds. And I'm, I'm glad it's going on. You know, I just finished Winner's Take All or uh -huh. whatever that book is. And yeah. God, I even learned more about that good team, you know, in the big money world. Mm -hmm. But that good team you describe is all over the place. It's certainly been in my world. And it's in Younger's world today that I work with and mentor that are just really um, on being socially just and having the correct language and being part of the decolonization uh, yeah. movement that's, that's called for. What gets tricky or I think deserves examination is the motivation um, that's under that. And I don't have an answer, obviously, but, and I guess what I've done in my own life and encourage other people to do is to keep asking the question. And in the practice of counsel, before we speak, we ask that question, that age-old question, who doth it serve? Mm -hmm. And we ask that question, it takes a second to say, does this serve me to speak? Does this serve others? Does it serve uh, spirit, mystery, healing, bigger story? And I don't necessarily get an answer in that moment, but the space that I'm in by asking that question and by saying, you know, I don't know the answer to this, but that's what I'm coming from, is out of a desire to serve um, healing, to serve connection, to serve the restoration of relations or the building of equity and good relations between people and between this earth. And I can only say that having really not found the answer to that question, you know, with all my do-good work in the 70s and 80s particularly, and hitting the wall again, even after sitting on the pillow for a while or on the rock, hitting the wall again is the gateway, I think, to a kind of humility that brings at least me back to that question. I don't know. And I ask for a knowing to come through me. And so that's one, to live the question mm -hmm. and to be in the don't know. And to be in the prayer. You know, may my body, Navajo prayer, may my body be a prayer stick. 
for this world. That's a true prayer for me. The other thing I'll, I'll just mention, because this is obviously a big, big topic, but is um, I think being truthful about what are the essentials in one's life is important. So if I go off to save the poor people somewhere and I totally talk about bypass, I totally bypass the people I'm living next door to mm -hmm. or my own family, which is riddled with two suicides and um, cancer and a lot of good things, but a lot of, lot of problems as well. If I just totally bypass that, that's, those things aren't essential. So I'm reviewing every year what's essential in my journey, knowing that my journey is not the same as yours, but wanting to be true and do my little part. And then I'm interested and curious what would happen if we all really lived from that place and did not just do good because of guilt or make a baby because that's what we were brought up to do or um, make money because that's where security seems to lie. Don't, right. don't agree with those things. Yeah. That question, what does it serve? I resonate with, with that, with what you said that like we might not even have the capability to have an honest answer to that, to produce an honest answer to that. I'm thinking in terms of like sitting in council, sitting in a circle of people, and here I am saying something. And why am I saying that? Is it so that people think I'm smart? Is it uh, to get attention? Is it so that um, to alleviate a feeling that I'm not doing enough? Is it because I'm genuinely transmitting information that I know is evolutionary for the group. Some of these all could, could all be mixed together too. And at this point, I don't trust myself to give an accurate answer to that question. But often in retrospect, you know, a day later or a week later, looking back at it, I might in hindsight have some awareness of what I was serving in that time. And then that information feeds into my being and I begin speaking differently in the future, carried by that question. I, I feel I'm different when I ask that question sincerely inside of myself. There's a shift, and that's the shift. It's not the answer necessarily mm -hmm. that comes. I can say having... Um, been in this practice of counsel now for all of these years that a lot of the times afterwards, I don't have any idea what I said. And I don't actually often get, oh, that really served. Uh -huh. You know, it's why I have a partner sometimes to just ask and say, I, I didn't like sound crazy, did I? Or, mm -hmm. you know, did I hurt anyone? Or so a lot of times, really being in that kind of spirit of counsel, um, there's not even a memory of what's been said. And I, I think that's, that 
is true about an, an act of pure giveaway. You know, we don't make good for the return in the moment or even in the lifetime. I don't know, the focus is not on the return. Mm -hmm. It's more that this is, this is all I have to offer and um, I hope it serves, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, maybe a speaking or a sharing practice in counsel, but it's also living counsel. And yes, on one hand, okay, I have the opportunity to live that way. I feel we all have the opportunity to live that way. And again, where the conditions are very different and money or food on the table or this seems to be the barrier to live that way, I'm working the best I can to change those inequities in this world. And I have to say, I, I don't find in truth that that money as an example, is that often the barrier mm -mm. to live in this spirit of care? I mean, I think it's a barrier the other direction. Yeah, it it's, can be, for sure. It's that, you know, the more money that people have, the harder it is for them to live in the spirit of gift. It can be, for sure. I mean, this whole idea, which is tied to Maslow's hierarchy and so forth, that being generous and altruistic and devoting yourself to service, that can come after you finally taking care of your material needs. Um, that just doesn't correspond to what I've seen in interacting with people from other cultures. Right. You know, it seems that the most generous, most open-handed people are the ones with objectively less material security. I think that's the place that you and I have both experienced um, that in being in other cultures. and. That certainly is a privilege for us to have had that experience. And I, I'm sad that so many people haven't had that experience, you know, mm -hmm. and this is something that a lot of wealthy people, their wealth keeps them away from having that experience. So, yeah, yeah, that's. But uh, and now in this country or in the West in general, there's kind of, there's a new kind of poverty where people not only have no financial security, but they also don't have community. They also don't know any of their neighbors. They don't have anyone to fall back on. And all it takes is, you know, one car repair or one medical emergency, and they're out in the street. And, and that's just happening to a lot of people right now. It's, it's a much deeper kind of poverty than mere financial poverty. Well, I can only confirm, I guess, the most recent um, sharing with a group of people where um, there was an exploration of what is security mm -hmm. and people were really using that language around a NGO and they were saying, you know, well, we're going to secure this funding and we're going to push for mm -hmm. um, this uh, goal of having this money to um, make certain that we're sustainable. And I just um, found myself checking them a bit on that language because, um, again, I, I acknowledge indigenous people um, for really being the ones who 
in part opened up my heart and mind to uh, that security is in all our relations. That's why all my relations. And um, if I feel any security, which I don't know that I actually do, um, but it's, it's in relations. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that as more people hit the edge, you know, I kind of... I hit the edges in my life. They were definitely gateways. Mm. I also created edge situations, you know, because I knew that I wanted to know more about healing and myself and in others. But I think as the world presses more of us into these crisis situations, that these turnings are possible. Um, these awakenings are possible. And I would, yeah, I don't wish fires on any community and I don't wish mudslides on the OI Foundation. And, but then again, um, I think the opportunity to be with these um, crises as uh, wake-ups um, is what's happening in our time. And I'm grateful, grateful for the people that have somehow prepared themselves psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. If not financially, they've prepared themselves. I don't think financial security is prepares us for what's coming. No, especially when the financial system could very easily collapse. Right. So and what do you have? What yeah. you have is relations. What you have is the grounding of your belonging to this earth. What you have is... a a love field if you create it with your community. What you have is truth of keep returning to why we're here and what is ours to do. Something like that. Yeah. You could say that it's it's not yours until you've given it away. Because then it's out there. It's established in the world. And someone who's in giving away, giving away, giving away their whole lives has a lot of relationships because mm. a gift creates a relationship and those relationships don't depend even on the physical separate self. Like something has been created in the world and because it doesn't depend on anything that happens to me, that's security. Mm. And there's such a crying deficit mm. of it today. Yeah, just the simple act of giving something to the water before you take it or to a plant before you use it. Or um, I loved working with some musicians, I won't name drop, but who, um, you know, talked about how a concert was a contact sport. Mm -hmm. And it's not one way. It's like, uh, I give, you give. And then there's a third that arises and whether that's with nature in this earth um, or with um, just giving someone a goddamn smile uh, in a restaurant that is uh, an angry yeah. waiter you know it doesn't take money to give right in uh, you know I did this uh, living in the gift online course and one of the kind of homework suggestions was to make a gift that is out of your ordinary flow. Because 
we're all giving all the time, actually. Right. Especially if you're if you're a parent, you know, if you're a friend, um, if you're working. I mean, in a way, like any anything that you do in the, any expenditure of your life energy towards something beyond yourself is a gift. But outside of the normal flow, like to go out of your way and give something anomalous in your life it doesn't have to be like more. It doesn't have to be like some big financial gift, but it could be like you're saying, like a smile or a kind word in a situation where human contact in a situation where you normally don't do that. And some people had some some really interesting experiences and some kind of uh, productive synchronicities followed these offerings. This third thing is born because you're extending out of your ordinary being. So it's almost um, inevitable that something new is going to happen. Wow. Okay. So a couple of things here. Um, if anyone can follow this, good luck. But I'm going to go back to a place where you were speaking before that mm-hmm. I really felt it, I could spend another hour on it. But that place where if you really care about this world and you care about yourself and you care about others, you know, in a way to keep working with that, like who does it serve? There's a place where one act serves all three of those in my mm-hmm. experience. Right. And um, so it's not to say if I give a smile to you, it's also serving me. And maybe it's bringing a little more smileness into the world. If I care, truly care about how many African-American people are in slave labor in prison in this country, I can, you know, get up and go out and try to do something about it. Or, as was the case in my life, caring about that from a very young age, I kept that prayer inside of me and went through the, the dark times and still do at times of like, I feel powerless, or I can't change this, or how am I a part of this mess? Living into that sadness or pain is part of then popping out um, some way, whether it be a synchronicity that years later I get involved Mm -hmm. in starting a, a council program in prisons. You know, um, again, not to say that that's going to change everything right away, but that seed of care was in me, and I did not have a way to act on it. A way was given to me. Mm -hmm. A way showed up for me. And that's living a soul line or a song line or the truth Mm -hmm. of our care and the truth of asking, what am I here to do? Please keep showing me. Please keep guiding me, whatever. And finding that the medicine that, or the gift that we're to give comes, and the place where we're to give it comes every day. And so a place that I would go even a bigger, maybe, I don't know, bigger, but maybe a little bit more challenging notch from what you were saying is... um, not only to go out of my norm in terms of giving, but what if also um, I just as an experiment offered the possibility to people that you, we identify the thing that we, who's the enemy? You know, is it Trump? 
Is it uh, white privilege? Is it whatever? Define where the enemy is. Capitalism, civilization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I defined my enemy early on. It was men for a long time. And so I had to, I had to find a way to make a relationship with men that was different than the one I hated, that was different than the one I found oppressive. Mm-hmm. That's like choosing to go to the other, to the um, enemy, to the and see what can what can we do there. Yeah. So you're making a sacrifice. I yeah, I gave up sitting in great women's circles all the time and feeling I was with my tribe and with people who saw me and understood me and did it. And I made a conscious choice to partner with some men. That was not easy. But, and, but you're also making a sacrifice of your uh, idea or certainty about... How bad they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like you're making a sacrifice of a story yeah. about the other that is also a story about yourself. Exactly. And that is... That's the kind of gift. A sacrifice is a kind of a gift. It's a yeah. sacred gift. And it's and it's can I walk my talk and say that I really don't want to just repeat the way um, maybe women were oppressed, you know, like um, by othering men. That was like a big moment for me in the 70s to get. That's not okay. I can't do that. So. Again, not that I've found all the answers, but I really said, I want to find a way to do this with men. And, you know, the old white men right now are kind of an endangered species on this planet. And um, I kid, but I also say, I, I'm an ally. I, I, want, I want them to learn what they need to learn to open their hearts to show mm-hmm. up and to not walk away when they're blamed or, you know, dumped on or uh, not given any voice. Um, they get to experience sitting through places now where um, people of color and um, LBGTQ and other people are centered and they get to sit there. Wow, I want to tell them what a gift that is. I want to thank them for giving that gift because in a weird way, it was a gift for me as a woman to have to sit for ages in conferences or uh, courses or Mm -hmm. um, jobs where men dominated the field. I, I actually learned quite a bit through that. Yeah. You know, just to backtrack a little bit to what you were saying about, um, the, you know, not wanting to turn, I'm not sure, I can't remember how you put it, but not wanting to turn the technologies of oppression onto a new target, uh, which is, you know, old white men or, or something. And recognizing that what is underneath racism or misogyny or... Um, any of these other homophobia, etc., is is dehumanization. To see somebody as less than fully human, and turning that onto a new target, is not going to bring fundamental healing. 
And that doesn't mean I uh, agree with the actions of corporations that right. um, invest in shit and make a lot of money and then pride <clears throat> themselves on being philanthropists right. and giving it away. I do not and have not supported that ever since I learned about it. I was horrified in the 70s. I can remember going to a conference in New York that w we were invited as um, spiritually motivated, socially responsible investors. Mm -hmm. And I had just um, received money after my mother's death, which was a total surprise to me on some levels. And it was like, oh my God, you know, I need to have this gift match what I've been working for in my life. And I went to this conference thinking, oh, well, this is where those people are going to uh -huh. be. And there are these heads of foundations. And, you know, like someone asked, I don't, I don't think it was me, but I was right there with them. Well, where's your money invested in the foundation? I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And that, that was like in the mid-70s or something. And it's only seemingly gotten worse in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. However, it's also gotten better in some places. And this is the old thing of the darkness and the light. And, uh, but there are some beautiful um, opportunities that grew out of people discovering that offness and people going and healing their family stories or yeah. changing their investments or, you know. Yeah. Once once you open that can of worms, um, there's a lot of worms to pull out because even seemingly innocuous investments are still part of a whole financial structure that basically finances the extraction of wealth from nature and from community. And it's really hard to, to escape that mm -hmm. and still get a, um, a positive return on investment. And ultimately, I mean, this I've done, you know, a bit of work around this. Ultimately, what has to be sacrificed is the priority on return on investment. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think cultivating the don't know. You don't know how something's going to turn out, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's at least what I want to continue to cultivate in myself and in the younger people that I work with. And then we get to see how it's going to turn out. We don't know. I think we do know at the moment if something is uh, headed yeah. in the direction of healing and love and care or if it's headed in the direction of destruction. And so, so this is what I wanted to ask you this question earlier when you were talking about what is mine to do, asking it every day. My question was, how do you recognize the call? How do you distinguish between this is mine to do and this is what is going to make my ego feel pleased with itself. Right. That's my husband's question for about 20 years I've been <laughs> with him, you know. Um, I mean, first is to say, I don't know. Um, next is to say, I seek the answer. I seek the truth. And the way I seek the truth may be different from the way you seek the truth. So my, my ways of um, seeking a course of action in a day or in a year are through prayer, through ceremony, through alone time in the desert, through um, 
a council, so it's not just me, but that um, like a flow fund, I don't just, if I have a gift of money to give away, I don't, just don't do it myself. Mm -hmm. I actually am in council with other people and with other beings and with the earth. And um, yeah, for me, every year, it's even my marriage. I make a commitment, like in the Basque tradition, which I learned, that I'm, I'm committed to love this person forever. And in the form of a marriage that we're in, that we need to revisit and renew that every year or find a way to walk away and support each other to do something different. So that's a quick answer to the way I do it. And ultimately, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is it my ego? Um, I think it's really hard, the whole cause and effect thing, too. It's like when when something's off in our body or something's right in our health, was it because we ate right? Yeah. Was it because we made love and the energy just cleaned out all of our ducks? You know, I think it's rarely one thing. So part of my response to your question is it's not a right or a wrong or an ego or God. Yeah. It's um, maybe for me, a, I, I look for a circle of wholeness and I own that I, I'm human. You know, I've had these, I've gone on, you know, trips, speaking conferences where, it's, where I was motivated, it seemed, by something very superficial, like motivated by, oh, well, this is high profile and it's, um, you know, prestigious and so it'll give me legitimacy, you know, or um, they're paying me a lot of money to speak at this one. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, it seemed like I was operating from an ego motivation, but then later, like it turned out to be amazing for reasons that I couldn't even have imagined. And I was like, wow, I'm glad that my soul um, arranged a way for my ego to be placated so that I could follow my soul's call. Well, that's a little bit like living the truth of who you are. You know, I can remember being with a man for years and looking back, okay, I stayed with him much longer than people thought was right or mm -hmm. much longer than I should have as a woman because I gave up my childbearing years or I can write all sorts of stories around that. I stayed with him as long as I needed to for who I was. <sighs> for me, especially with someone like you, I, I would love to be with a few other people that really are asking that question before they get on an airplane. You know, like, what are the reasons I'm going? And when I go to that country or to that conference, Am I aware that I've opened myself up and I will then be in the dreaming of those people in that place? And is that the dreaming that I'm here to be in? And that goes for me back to the oldest way of songline that at least I had a glimpse of with the Aboriginal people 
in Australia, which is that, you know, you want to be at the right tree at the right time to meet the person you're here to meet. And if you're not singing to the earth, we might miss that meeting. Mm -hmm. And so with those of us that can get on an airplane, as an example, should we? Could we? Will we? And just keep living, I guess, for me, I want to keep living that question and I want a few other crazy allies because if we stop at each threshold before we make a baby or I think getting on an airplane is a big deal, um, it's not a right or a wrong. It's, wow, I, I'm supposed to be on that airplane and if that airplane then goes down, yeah. yeah it's Does not, that make sense? Yeah, it's not about like scrutinizing our motivations and trying to call the bad ones mm. and to become a better person. That's a kind of a war against the self. Mm. I recently received a communication from somebody saying, Charles, I'm very disappointed in you. I found out that you fly a lot. And... You know, you're, I love your ideas, your writing, but, you know, and now I'm not sure exactly what he said, but it was basically, um, I'm crestfallen. You're just another hypocrite. Um, and basically, I, I, I felt in the communication, like, almost like begging me to justify myself, to somehow say, oh, it's okay that I'm flying because mm. I've considered the the pros and the cons, you know, and the carbon footprint, and I've decided, da, 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 like wanting me to provide that justification so that it could then be demolished. Um, and really where I come from is that that's not even how I make decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not that I ignore the system, the ramifications of flying, of air travel, of that whole industrial system. Like, I understand it's not just carbon, what jet fuel production and aircraft production and the whole social apparatus around it. And I mean, the several square miles of airport facilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that I'm ignorant of that and wave it off, but it's that I take in as much information as I can bear about the way that the world is, about myself. And then I trust that the right decision will come from that taking in of information. And that the more information, the more I'm able to take it in, it's not so much a quantity of information, but it's letting the information penetrate me. Most particularly, the information about myself. What motivates me? What unmet needs do I have? What needs am I meeting in myself through air travel? for example, to become clear on those, not to extirpate them, not to yank out those weeds, but to recognize who I am. And because that in itself is a new kind of information that forms me into a different chooser. So, you know, someone who is going off for epic vacations um, and flying off all over the place to have adventures, Maybe when they recognize 
an unmet need in themselves to push their boundaries in some other aspect of life that they are compensating for by these travel adventures. Once they see that, then the travel adventures may become no longer so appealing to them mm -hmm. without ever having to suppress or fight themselves. A change has happened. Great. So a few things. One is I think of the turn into the skid, you know, or the teaching on a river. If a wave mm -hmm. is coming and, you know, you resist it, uh, you will capsize. If you turn into that wave, you will go through it. So early on, there was a side of me that said, okay, I wish there was enough money or whatever people thought in the world would make happiness and we could just give it to everybody and everybody could get what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And then what would happen? Like, that was like a fantasy of mine. I didn't even need to be the person to give it, but, right. you know, our wants coming so much from our wants, if we could just wave a, a wand and give everybody what they think they wanted. Wow, what would be next? So, um, yeah, some of us want or need movement or want or need comfort or want or need whatever, adventure. Um, so one maybe idea is that if we really went for it, mm -hmm we would hit the wall pretty quickly and find out, oh, that's actually not really what I'm seeking. Right. And, of course, we might, you know, hit global warming a lot faster if everybody jumped on a plane tomorrow and all the airlines were free. But I'm just saying that's one thought I have that arises mm -hmm. with this. Another feeling that comes for me is, of course, anyone can say we're hypocrites if we fly and then you get to deal with the one of like well am I gonna not fly or be affected by that judgment um, in order to you know not be a hypocrite that's where this deep knowing of like I made this decision whether however you make yours I made this decision and that's what I'm here to do has to carry you or me beyond what everybody else is perceiving. And um, the third thing that comes to me is like the power of movement and community. And if we're going to stand up and say, you know, I was uh, raped, um, there are not many of us that want to do that alone. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm going to stand up and say, you know, I still fly some, um, but I'm really willing not to fly anymore if we can make it a community and a movement that does the stay home movement. And then it has some greater purpose than the original purpose for which I was flying. That attracts right. me. That attracts me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to, uh, you know, uh, concoct some justification for my flying. Um, but the part of me that wants to justify it is not a part of me that I want to strengthen right now. Um, and also, that justification would be a lie. I think usually when people are asked, well, why are you doing that? With an accusatory note, they create a lie that they themselves believe. They give reasons that 
fit into their self-image that they think the other person will approve of, that fit into their ethical constructs. It's interesting spectrum, though, that comes up for me. Like, you know, like in some cultures, putting a baby in ice-cold water is a healing thing. And in, you know, some other cultures... Gigi's that... not making this up. She, she was... <laughs> She spent a lot of time in, in the Soviet Union back in the day, and like this practitioner would take babies and like immerse them in like ponds that they cut the ice, you know, cut a hole in the ice and immerse the baby in there. Okay, like, so yeah. <laughs> for someone that's going to be right. considered abuse. Yes. And some people go all the way, like, you know, killing is okay in a certain cultural context. Right. Um, I'm not a philosopher. I, I can't go too far down that road, but that's what you're bringing up when you get into a question of, or the issue of like, am I being judged for flying or not? I wonder why are people spending their time on that, quite honestly? Um, judging Charles, um, maybe they need to do that in order to not put you on a pedestal. And yeah. maybe that will help them go deeper into their own way of being in integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know. I want to walk down that kind of road too far. Yeah. Now, I brought it up just as maybe to exemplify a different kind, a different way of making choices right. that I'm exploring that isn't based on here's what I have to do to be counted a good person. And that is such a deep programming that letting go of that puts me in a space between stories where sometimes I have problems with indecision. Like if I don't choose based on the way I was brought up to choose, or another way that we are programmed in this culture to choose is based on what is going to maximize my self-interest. Uh, what's the best financial decision? So if I'm not going to choose based on that, and I'm not going to choose based on what do I have to do to be counted a good person, then what? And that's why I'm so interested in what you're talking about with what is mine to do and how do I listen to that call? And I'm happy with it being an open question. But, and, and also <clears throat> like what we've talked about a little bit, which is not for today, but a, your map of wholeness, you know, like yeah. it's not money or not money. You, you have a child, you have a wife, you have your physical being, you have your spirit, you have many things that are essentials for Charles at this time in your life. And so... Yeah, I would even consider reframing indecision maybe as taking the time that's needed to check in with all of those different things. And it can mm -hmm. be that it's done in an hour sometimes, or it can be that it takes longer. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of kiddingly but truthfully say, don't make a decision until we have to. Mm. You know, we, I say we so many want to know you know, we want the plan. We yeah. want the year schedule. We want the life career um, because it's secure. You know, it right. gives some people a sense of security. What, what if, you know, like actually we can develop our ability more to not know 
just the essentials need to know. And in my experience, if we get the next step, you know, that's pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't know you well enough to have a judgment about how you make decisions, but or how long you take, or if you're procrastinating. But I would say for many of us, we need to um, get a little better at not making decisions, but um, being with uh, the, the, not the either or, but the, the circle of possibilities, and then having the decision arise, and there mm -hmm. being a knowing, you know, like, right. I kept waiting for a knowing about having a child, you know, all these other women I was around, you know, it was like, now's the time. And I was like, well, yeah, but I haven't had a knowing yet. And I just like, I can't create doing one of the most powerful things in the world, create another human being without a knowing. Mm -hmm. And so I waited. Yeah. Sometimes it happens anyway, whether or not you have a knowing. Yes, true. <laughs> but we're on this track for now. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, the either or mind, if I had my magic wand again, like with the other things, I would want to give the gift to people in this world to be free from what others think of us, you know, or from the good stamp of approval. Mm -hmm. Like if we could free ourselves from that, um yeah i think that that's the root of a lot of the dysfunction in u.s political culture right now that just like everyone wanting to be in the in-group but it's interesting because as soon as i said that i thought of the people that actually don't give a damn in you know the people that like keep making newport cigarettes that are the most Killing cigarettes, they obviously don't want to be on the good team. But you know what? When you actually talk to them, they do think they're on the good team. Come on. This is the mind-blowing fact. Making like, Newport cigarettes for people to smoke. See, that's the question. So, so like, here's the, here's the... We have these moments where, where it's like, okay, well, here's the exception. So I'm going to dehumanize these people. They are absent some basic quality of humanity that you and I have because they just don't care. But where I, where I go with it, and maybe that's true, but maybe it's not. But that's like the, the response that our culture encourages. But where I like to go is, what story are they living in that tells them that it's okay? Totally agree. Yeah. And when you see that, and you get to see that even Trump, as an example, I can look at that man, I, I know why he is the way he is. If you know people and know parents and know environments yeah. that he's grown up in, you know why he acts and behaves the way he does. And that's not to say I'm positive about it, but I can, I can understand it. And then I also am in a less powerless place, right. maybe to have a connection that might affect some change. Right. If it's just the enemy and evil and like the box of like, they don't care. Yeah, those are tough. Yeah. Either or worlds and. So many people today are in this kind of 
radical, we can change the world phase. If I only expend more energy, if only everybody else expends more energy, gets more active, calls it out more, protests more, does it more, direct action, more, more, more. If only we did more of that, then things would change. And then hitting the wall, burning out, or getting really cynical. Some people just get cynical because they see the same dysfunctions in their own organizations that they're trying to change in the world and want to come to a deeper level of cause. So many people are in that. I, I know it well and see it, and I'm going to get to ask you. So what do you think about that? What do you think about that? And what do you say about that? I mean, I think that it's a very healthy, positive development to say, actually, after all this, I really don't know how to change the world. And I don't know what to do with my life. That's a positive development from thinking that you know what to do but not actually knowing what to do. Yeah, it goes back for me to years back when Thich Nhat Hanh came and um, Joan Halifax and Ojai and others created a 10-day meditation with the environmental active leaders that were making a difference in our world. And 10 days of sitting and um, silence and walking. And at the end of that time, we had a council and we had a panel and... I always, uh, to this day, um, it was so confirming for me to hear James Thornton, who was head of NRDC, strong, great mm -hmm. organization, still today. And he said, um, I've given up all hope. And I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm sorry, James, if I'm misquoting you, but what I got was, I don't think I'm going to save the earth or save the world, and, uh, and I'm 100% committed mm -hmm. to do the best I can while I'm here. That's what I'm yeah. looking for and listening for and watering. I think watering those seeds. Yeah. This is something that, that I feel a deep alliance with you in holding. Um, the understanding that we are part of a process that's inconceivably larger than ourselves and you know it's like what I was saying before about going into something from some ego motivation maybe but then realizing that there was that even my ego was being used as a pawn by a deeper intelligence that is going to put me in the right place at the right time whatever it takes to get me there and just to realize sometimes that I am just so not in control over my life mm. That, that even my, okay, how should I make decisions is basically an attempt to overlay a false, a false agency over something over which I do not have that kind of agency. And so then to, to relate that to saving the world, which evokes the idea of humanity in the driver's seat, the operator of the machine deploying resources here and there and and how do I do this thing? And letting go of that conception of our individual and collective selves and releasing into a larger beingness that is inconceivably wise and intelligent. And then instead of being the saviors, 
we ask, how can I participate in, it's not even the saving, but how can I participate in the dream that wants to happen or the evolution that, that wants to happen? Why am I here? Um, what are my gifts for? What do I want to be part of? So you're going right where I was going with you. And I was going to ask, you know, do you want to be in sync with this mm -hmm. larger intelligence? Um, and if you or we do, how does one become more in sync with it? And so the image that came to me as you were talking <clears throat> um, is one thing, surrender, and, you know, we don't know mind and etc. But another thing came to me too, which was, um, this is weird, but when you go and do a wilderness first responder or a first aid course, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you train for what to do when um, someone's having a heart attack, okay? Um, and you think, oh, I can't memorize this, you know, or God, but you, you keep training and they make you come back year mm -hmm. after year until the, that's the response when you see someone on the ground gasping for breath. The, the action comes out of you to, to be of service, to help that person. Mm -hmm. So this is in part, I guess, why I offer ceremonies and fasts in the desert or the silent time here at Three Creeks or... It has something to do with practicing and learning uh, more in ourselves how to be in sync mm -hmm. um, with this larger intelligence. And again, I'm not convinced that this is, you know, the way. I do know from my own experience and working with others over these years that I turn a corner and I think of the owl and the owl is there. And I think about that the water needs my attention or it's going to overflow. And I go just at the moment. Mm -hmm. And when that's translated into then going into a city or living in a city, it's as possible there to be in sync with... Um, I don't know what to call it other than caring, love, field, action, truth, Gaia, God, mm -hmm. mystery, spirit, intelligence. And I think, I do not think I'm special. I just know that by carrying this prayer and this intention, it has, there's been a quickening. Yeah. And that those stories and those confirmations come to me like I have a dream of a person and the next morning I know to call that person and they needed that call right it can be that simple right yeah I like the term in sync it comes from s-y-n-c-h the c-h being synchronicity right so I have a in the living in the gift course I have a, a unit on synchronicity and not only in terms of like a big meaningful wow coincidence, things, yeah. but also like this confirmation that I'm part of a larger intelligence, that I, I don't have to do this all myself, that all I have to do is show up and respond and I will be well used. And that the intention, 
So what attracts that is the intention to be well used, which then brings up the, the ways in which I am serving something else. It brings those to attention, brings the, the wounds and the traumas that feed those blockages, those other masters. And it's like living in the spirit of counsel when you get like, I'm not here just to save the world alone. I'm part of something bigger. Yeah. And if other people and I can support other people to also do their part, then that addresses burnout yep. and makes burnout bullshit and addresses a lot of other things in terms of where the ego leads us astray. Right. Because it's not all up to you. No. <laughs> Thank God. You can relax. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. 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 I can relax. I don't know. We should talk about, we should do another podcast on relaxing. Uh -huh. um, I think that um, it gives a peace of heart mind. Mm -hmm. And when you keep opening our channels to be used, I actually get more energy. But maybe less anxiety. Yes, and less yeah. sleep. Uh -huh. <laughs> but most of the time it's okay. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good... Uh, I was going to say, maybe we should go relax. <laughs> no, this is yeah. relaxing. Yeah. Thank you. You yeah. know, thank you for how you began, just with um, appreciation of this place and, and our relationship. I love it. And mm -hmm. you're always welcome here. And to say that... Um, turning into the skid here was, oh my God, I swore I was never going to own anything again. You know, yeah. that was liberating. And that was like really showed that I was a monk in service or a right. nun in service. And then this place, when it came up for sale and it looked so beautiful, I thought, oh no, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, that will just increase the image of, you know, this privileged uh, mm -hmm. white woman out there and uh, and underneath right. I had to turn into that and get over that fear totally and know that I could own this place with other people and share it and actually very gently bust some of the the paradigm of private property and uh, elite exclusion mm -hmm. and I've been walking slowly with that prayer for 20 years here and um, living through projections and um, living into what's possible, even in an ownership society, right. even though it might not be the paradigm ultimately that I'm at home in. Right. But you're willing to, so you're willing to sacrifice the self-image of being an um, an unattached, you know, spiritual, don't own anything. That was something yeah. you had to, to lay at the altar in order to acquire this property to be of greater service. Yeah, and it yeah. was I, uh, it was much easier for me to be living out of my car, to be honest, and, right. you know, working on the street. And there's that hook in to being the good activist. Right. And, um, oh, God, you know, shit. Nope, yep. can't do that one. Now you got to do this one. Yep. And that's what I say about living the truth of my life. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, I had the resources um, and to 
to put them into um, care of, of this oasis with other people who cared deeply about water and about the people in this valley. Um, oh, I got to risk that one. And it's not been the easiest one, but I, uh, I'm good. Well, I'm glad you did it. <laughs> and I know many other people are grateful that you made that choice. And like James Thornton, I'll close by saying I'm 100% committed and I could leave tomorrow mm -hmm. if that was really the guidance in my wholeness as best right. I could see and know to do. So you are welcome here forever as long as uh, we're stewards. Thank you. We'll see what's next. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you, Charles. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.